This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. With me today to discuss their June 16th review article in the New England Journal of Medicine titled Climate Change, Fossil Fuel Pollution, and Children's Health are its authors, Federica Pereira, Columbia University Professor of Environmental Health Sciences, and Carrie Nadeau, Natasee Foundation Endowed Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at Stanford. Uh, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. The author's bios are, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, fossil fuel pollution is largely the consequence of coal-fired power plant generation that is responsible for nearly half of greenhouse gas pollution worldwide, due in part to coal's use in supplying over a fifth of U.S. electricity. The U.S. still operates 240 coal plants. By comparison, if the U.S. operated the number of plants Proportional to the UK, the US would operate 35. Greenhouse gas pollution resulting from coal and other fossil fuel combustion is so harmful to the public's health. Duke's Drew Schindel concluded in congressional testimony last fall that even if it was free, it would still be, he concluded, a money loser. This is due in part to resultant health harm. Last year, Harvard, along with three uh, UK universities, concluded fossil fuel pollution was responsible for 8 million deaths or 18% of global deaths in 2018. In the US, pollution resulting from fossil fuels use accounts for nearly 60% of excess US deaths. This being my 27th or 8th climate crisis related podcast, Dedicated listeners are well aware that the U.S. healthcare industry and federal healthcare policymakers have, to date, absent recent greenwashing efforts, refused to legitimately address or even recognize the problem, even to the extent of addressing the healthcare industry's own considerable greenhouse gas pollution. It is beyond belief, for example, that neither the Office of the U.S. Surgeon General nor the HHS Office of Civil Rights has ever recognized what's been defined as the greatest threat to human health, particularly minority health. With me again to discuss proportional, disproportional health harms the climate crisis inflicts on children are professors Frederica Pereira and Carrie Nadeau. So with that lengthy introduction, let's get uh, right to this. Um, again, your Nijim article, Climate Change Fossil Fuel pollution and children's health um, gets into uh, specific health harms. So let me set up the question regarding if you can explain those by noting, as you do, that globally we release 35 billion metric tons of CO2 annually, and that these emissions expose 1 billion children to high levels of air pollution, specifically massive amounts of airborne fine uh, particulates. So the questions again specifically, and I'll start with uh, uh, Professor Pereira, what effects physiologically does this have, do these pollutants have on children? Well, these pollutants have many effects and children are suffering the most of all of us from climate change. 
uh, from heat-related illness and trauma, mental health problems, respiratory illness from smoke, from forest fires, food insecurity, from drought, and climate-related infectious diseases. We've seen Lyme disease increase, in, particularly in children. And heat waves, just like the ones this month in much of the U.S., affected 100 million people, including many children. And then you add to that the estimated seven plus million kids in the US who were exposed to lung damaging wildfire smoke every year in a recent period. So um, not only though do children suffer the most from climate change, but they're most affected by air pollution. And air pollution, as you mentioned, is a major cause of, of death, both in adults and also in infants. But it's also a trigger of asthma attacks in children and a cause of the disease itself. That's new information we have in just the past few years. And as you mentioned, a billion children worldwide are exposed to very high levels of air pollution. Uh, more than uh, 135 million Americans live in regions with highly polluted air. And uh, air pollution is on its own side associated with infant deaths, with preterm birth, um, reduced cognition and ability to learn attention problems, uh, and ADHD and autism. And we're now discovering mental health conditions in children and adolescents associated with air pollution. Um, and uh, just to increase our concern, there's evidence that they have cumulative impacts. Climate change and air pollution can act collaboratively, so to speak, in, in, in sometimes in a synergistic or multiplicative way to affect children's health. And we know that nearly every child in the world is exposed simultaneously to both toxic air pollution and at least one climate-related shock or stresses that, that, that I mentioned. So um, there is a concern about the dual effects of fossil fuel here and, uh, and, and a very urgent need to reduce those emissions. Thank you. I, I do want to, I appreciate your noting that uh, the new research that showed that uh, not only is, uh, are these pollutants a trigger for asthma, but you, you noted new research or recent research shows it's also a cause, can be a cause for asthma. And I did want to note that, particularly since, as it relates to health disparities, of course, uh, black children are disproportionately uh, found to be asthmatic. Not surprising because they leave, usually typically live in communities that have higher uh, levels of air pollutants. Uh, I'll note, too, as well, in your uh, review article, you do cite some survey data. Um, Across 10 countries, you repeat uh, the findings, noting that nearly 60% of young persons said that they felt very worried or extremely worried about climate change. 45% their feelings about climate change negatively affected their uh, daily lives. Um, so um, the, the effects are almost innumerable. In fact, I recently wrote, you may have heard this. Um, I heard it stated in Europe uh, not infrequently, that if the climate crisis, uh, to understand the climate crisis, if you put, um, if, if a bookshelf contained books on all the diseases known to man, the climate crisis would be the bookshelf. Uh, uh, it's a, it's some people just term it a threat multiplier. It's, um, 
it's 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 far worse than that. Um, so, um, uh, uh, Doctor Nadeau, do you want to add to that? I know, since your particular specialty actually is in asthma, uh, childhood asthma. Well, I think that Dr. Prayer did an excellent job reviewing all of the issues that face any given child and their family today. It's really critical to understand that with children being affected over their life course and cumulative effects as doctors, as pediatricians, as healthcare providers, we really need to look at the child holistically. And because over their lifetime, they are going to be unfortunately suffering from all of these events. And with that in mind, we need to now put structures in to be able to methodically train healthcare workers on climate change and health effects, especially in children and pregnant women and their families. We also need to make sure that we're in it for the longitudinal framework of any given child to make sure that we're there to help them with mental health issues, with heat stress issues. And that also is our advocacy to help the whole family. We can oftentimes be educators. And so we talk about that in the article. And I think that's really important um, as we try to help families. And again, because of cumulative effects and because of mental health stress issues as well. And like you mentioned, David, how important it will be to make sure that we focus on vulnerable populations. And that includes children. And we're seeing more and more people get displaced and we're going to see more of these events in the future. And we really need to be proactive in how to mitigate and adapt to climate change and educate our families. Well, I, I, that's absolutely perfect. I would add one, one point, David, um, what I said is uh, we know that all children are vulnerable and at risk and children are biologically and behaviorally more vulnerable than adults. Um, but as, as Carrie and you have said, the heaviest burden of climate change and air pollution fall on the least advantaged. And that's true around the world. And it's true in the United States, where, for example, you have more sighting of polluting sources. You have uh, more heat wave, risk from heat waves because of policies like redlining that have created these urban heat islands uh, and where there are resources to protect very few resources to protect children from heat. Uh, and uh, so, and, and then furthermore, severe storms like uh, hurricanes Katrina and, um, and uh, Harvey uh, hit uh, black and low income communities the hardest because they're often uh, forced to live in those areas, low lying regions, areas that are most vulnerable to severe storms and floods. Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 it is the case um, that not just uh, individuals, children, and of course, frail elderly are disproportionately harmed, but of course, you throw in uh, the variable of socioeconomic status or economic inequality, and of course, that just compounds or adds to uh, the problem. So, although uh, Professor Perry, you did cover this, I do want to uh, uh, spend a, a few more minutes on. Beyond the direct effects of uh, pollutants resulting from fossil fuel combustion, or as you know, massive amounts of airborne fine respirable uh, particulates, um, is of course this compounding effect of, of global warming has on uh, on extreme causing extreme weather events, supercharging. You mentioned hurricanes, 
Um, and you did mention uh, air quality as it relates to uh, wildfires. But if we could spend a bit more time on, you know, again, appropriately, nearly, quote unquote, nearly every child around the world is considered to be at risk from at least one climate hazard, quote unquote. And you ID several, of course, uh, extreme events, of course, uh, heat, um, wildfire, smoke, compromise, decreased food and water and food resources, increased vector-borne diseases. You probably read recent research, 70% now of emergent uh, contagious diseases are zoonotic, uh, in part the result of, of the climate crisis. So there is, a, there is a whole other side of the coin here relative to uh, global warming, uh, changing uh, the ecosystem or destabilizing it, causing further health harm. Would you like to add any more to that? Well, well, that's certainly true that um, it, there is an interaction between climate change and air pollution. And as, as I mentioned, or you mentioned, nearly every child is exposed to at least one climate shock plus uh, air pollution. But uh, in fact, the, the numbers are even more dire. They're uh, one in uh, one in three children in the world yes. is in areas where there are at least four climate-related events uh, overlapping with each other, and more than ninety percent of the world's children are breathing unhealthy air. That just kind of puts the stamp on this point that that children are multiply exposed and interactions are being seen between them. For for example, pregnant mothers exposed to heat and air pollution uh, are experiencing more uh, preterm babies born preterm, born too early. Uh, a similar kind of interaction has been observed with, uh, with asthma, where heat and air pollution can collaborate to increase asthma. So um, we, that's again, coming back to the point that we need to think about them holistically but also in, in terms of their harm, but also in terms of the benefits of, of reducing these emissions. And we know how to do that. Yeah. So, David, I think it's also good to focus on solutions um, on the individual, uh, national and global level. And like Dr. Pereira mentioned, you know, we we are working towards that. So one of the elements that people have found is that for example, in, in Finland, when they've greened playground, when they've uh, made sure that children are playing in areas that um, have more carbon sequestration or not near pollution and, um, and are able to maintain an environment where they're, where they're present with live green plants, they actually change their immune system. They actually change their cognition. Their cognition improves. They actually change their mental health so that they're less stressed. So this has been studied now in randomized controlled settings, and it only takes about one month to see these changes. So on the flip side, we are talking about the problems with climate change, but we also have the tools and the policy by which to make it better for children. And then the other aspect is on the global and the national levels by instituting decarbonization, by instituting really strong legislation and regulation around carbon emissions, we've already seen benefits. In fact, Dr. Pereira has one of the seminal articles in terms of the co-benefits and the cost effectiveness around decarbonizing and around restrictive regulations to be able to help 
not only the economy, but also most importantly, children's health as well. And then finally, on the individual level, insurance companies and individual health workers could put into place mechanisms by which for prenatal care, for example, they start to educate and ask proactively families about, do you live near a highway? What is a climate change event that has occurred close by to you? What are you worried about? That can happen in the prenatal care visits. And then in addition, the pediatricians, when they see the children, they can also have wellness checks. And as doctors, we oftentimes have specific questions to ask during wellness checks. And that can be incorporated into the wellness checks and moved forward by having appropriate reimbursement structures by Medicare and Medicaid to be able to make sure that these types of systematic ways of proactively educating and adapting to climate change are instituted. Thank you. I, I'll, I'll, I have to note, since I'm uh, in part Finnish, you're probably well aware that the Finns usually score as having the, the best primary educational program uh, in the world. I'm sure this, this should help your point contribute to it. Um, let's, let's pick up on the health sector um, you do know that uh, the Board of Pediatrics uh, in their maintenance of certification module has climate uh, education included, climate health and equity. Uh, the first board, you know, uh, offers such content. Um, let me ask you your assessment of both med professional medical education and, of course, the professional association's efforts to address. Obviously, we know the solutions. In fact, for many years, it's, it's been known, you know, there, there are really no technological nor economic barriers any longer for delinking, put it uh, politely, delinking our economy from uh, fossil fuels. Um, the the, the hangup, of course, is political, as witnessed by, of course, last year's SCOTUS opinion, last week's SCOTUS opinion. Um, but what's your general assessment, or if you can comment on your assessment of uh, professional medical education, and again, the professional associations. I think we're making inroads. I think we need to go quickly. I think the IPCC report this past year saying that we're on red alert. We don't have mm. much time. We need to make sure that we can stay within the 1.5 degrees centigrade Paris Agreement thresholds, because otherwise we are going to see tragedies unfold more so than what we're seeing already today. For example, the heat stress events and unfortunate deaths due to things that we could have prevented if we can really move hard. So I think on the education front, there are now programs that are integrated into medical schools, into nursing schools, but in my mind, there's not enough. We need to do it systematically Luckily, the United States has, as you mentioned, the American Board of Pediatrics has now put board questions in for climate change and health. Luckily, the United States as a whole has board questions and boards that can institute these types of questions on their exams so that that way medical schools know and nursing schools know, okay, that's a really important category to teach to. I'm hoping that this can occur throughout the world. The WHO has put together an academy by which health ministers and health workers around the world go to Lyon, France, and then also have a digital health framework to, by which to teach about the issues around climate change and health. And then they also teach about resiliency and about capacity building. And what does that mean? That means educating around climate change and health so that they can have the tools necessary to give the communities to be able to adapt to climate change, like 
restructuring how they recycle water or restructuring how they put their roofs together to decrease the risk of wildfires. So these are really usable, tangible tool sets by which we're educating healthcare workers so that they can have a life of sustained knowledge and that they can also, this is having to be a living education document because these case studies need to be shared and then we need to be proactive about how we address that, like I said, and hopefully third-party payer systems will also reimburse that education and that time with the patient with dis to discuss. But importantly, as providers, as researchers, as people that care about families and children in general, we really do need to know that this could change over time and that this education now needs to be in a situation where we're constantly testing things and making sure that what we're educating on is working and helping. So we also need to be benchmarking our education, which is what we're doing now. So there are many universities around the US doing this, and I'm very thankful for that, and we need to do it more systematically throughout the world. Yeah, thank you. Aspect of another reason why we wanted to write this article in the New England Journal of Medicine, and um, talking to health professionals, physicians, because um, they and we all need to know more about the consequences of fossil fuel pollution and all its forms. And they need to know, as Kari said, what to tell their patients, how to help the patients, but also uh, to be good advocates because there is a, no more trusted voice than that of professionals, physicians. And so we wanted to give them the tools so they could be advocates. And then also some information on what, um, what they as individuals could do in reducing their own, as we call it, the carbon footprint and uh, taking actions such as reducing their food and to low uh, carbon uh, plant-based foods diet. And, uh, and particularly in advocating, because we think that not in, there's not been enough engagement of this powerful sector uh, in the struggle, really, it's a struggle, as Kari said, to keep the global warming at the level that is deemed to be the threshold beyond which there will be catastrophic consequences, and that's the 1.5 degrees Celsius, this is, above the pre-industrial levels. So there were many um, goals in writing this article, and there's much that, that uh, health professionals can do. Thank you. Um, since, Carrie, you used the word Medicaid, uh, let's go to it. I, I did find it interesting that in reading your review article, the program gets, gets no mention. Um, you probably, for listeners, uh, should be aware um, the program ensures about 50% of children, covers 42% of U.S. births. It's the single largest purchaser of health insurance in the U.S., one out of every four healthcare dollars. Um, I'll phrase it this way. The current CMS administration or leadership thereof um, in their discussions about strategic visioning for Medicare, Medicaid. Uh, there's no mention. Uh, numerous other related documents don't specifically mention, particularly as it relates, there's no mention of uh, disproportionate effects climate has on minority populations. Um, so the question is, I'll, I'll phrase it this way, 
if if you were sitting down with uh, the CMS administrator, Chiquita Brooks-Lasor, or even uh, the CMMI director, Liz Fowler, um, what would you say to them relative to the extent to which Medicaid really needs to, uh, let's just say, uh, get active? Well, it has to change. We have to do better. And I know that John Balvis and other HHNS uh, directors really want to make sure that environmental justice, equity, health equity specifically uh, for children. And if we can't ch- if we can't help those children, most vulnerable, those people that have been discriminated or red zoned, then who can who are we helping first? Right. Those are what we have to do and take as our priority. So I think for Medicaid, um, as a pediatrician, I'm very thankful for it. I'm very thankful for our underserved populations, but we need to do more and have that commitment because we really should leave no child behind, no family behind. These are rough times. We saw what happened in the underserved populations during COVID. COVID. It was the ex, it was the x-ray into the soul of how we deal with our healthcare system. And now knowing that, knowing what could happen as a detriment to children's health, we need to now proactively think about how we can use Medicaid effectively because it is a tool. Many families depend on it. Many physicians want to be able to provide more care using it. And so we need to really think about working with our government administrators to help it be more inclusive and, of course, have it be funded more. And I understand there are state-to-state directives. We, I happen to live in a state in which Medicaid is fairly well-funded and used and, of course, resourced but we can also even do a better job in California to, again, think about how to do home weatherization as prescriptions to help families make sure that we can provide them clean, good air using air filters for their homes, that those could be prescriptions that are reimbursed by Medicaid, for example, because in the end, they work and they can help. Thank you. Uh, Professor Prera? Well, I don't think I have much to add to that. I think those are such excellent points. Um, and you were right about the uh, the rates of childhood illness in of color and low-income communities. They are just shockingly disparate from uh, the rates in, in quite more advantaged ch- children. Uh, and uh, sometimes on the order of, uh, of 50, of, 50 fold. Um, am I right in that? 50%, I think. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. No, that's right. You that's, got it. That's true for both uh, preterm birth and asthma. The rates are shockingly higher. And it's not that we're saying that air pollution and climate change are the entire problem, but they are major contributors. And you use the term, and we do too, in the article threat multipliers. And, and you know what is particularly upsetting is to know how these are preventable exposures. And as we say, we know how to, we know what the solutions are and we have them available now in terms of both helping with adaptation and resilience, but also in mitigating and reducing the emissions that are causing these tragic problems. And, uh, and they're right at hand. We don't have to wait for technological breakthroughs to to figure out how to do this. And so we can achieve that goal of of keeping us within a a bound beyond which there will be just terrific, horrific consequences of climate change and reducing air pollution and 
it pays. I mean, we did a, a study, it's relatively small scale, I guess you could say, uh, but um, it was to do with the regional greenhouse gas initiative in the uh, Northeastern and Mid-Atlantic states. And over a period of four years, that initiative saved many uh, thousands or prevented many thousands of, of asthma uh, exacerbations and, uh, and, and many preterm births and other uh, uh, ill effects of air pollution. That's the, that's the metric we used. And, um, and, and many uh, millions of dollars. So it's the Clean Air Act is another example. I don't think we mentioned that, Kari, but that's, that's a, right. a, a wonderful example where the Clean Air Act amendments uh, through 2020 are estimated to have uh, uh, brought benefits, uh, economic benefits of $2 trillion and prevented adult deaths and, 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 and many other illnesses throughout the population. They've been cost effective and the costs uh, or the benefits I should say have been estimated at 30 times the cost of, of the yes. regulations to keep the air clean and the air has become cleaner, but we have a way to go. And as we've said, there's disparity in air pollution just along with the other disparities we, we talked about. You know, just to uh, make note relative to the Clean Air Act, uh, it's considered the most successful uh, piece of legislation in U.S. history relative to the return on the investment, uh, per your point. Um, so it's, it's worth noting, particularly, again, uh, in context of last week's decision. I do want to ask you about, I, I, I'd be remiss um, to ask you about uh, your own um, university's efforts um, I, I will say that since I think, uh, Carrie, you used the words, um, you noted the February IPCC report, it had a section, the limits of adaptation, the feds talk a lot about, CMS talks a lot about adaptation. The problem with adaptation is both soft and hard, uh, human adaptation, soft adaptation, and natural systems, hard adaptation. We've already reached the limits. Um, so, uh, Adapting is becoming increasingly um, difficult, eventually impossible. Uh, I'll add that you can't adapt your way out of this problem, right? Mm. Uh, particularly oh, yes. as, well, as, as the planet warms, as, I, as everyone says uh, frequently, you have to stop digging the hole. <laughs> Absolutely. I think both Dr. Perr and I would completely agree with you. You, can, you cannot have adaptation without mitigation. We must absolutely have mitigation. We must absolutely go to renewable energy sources and ensure that we pollute less. And you know, there's mixed issues going on here that for any one individual in the world, they're dealing with air pollution, water pollution, soil pollution, food insecurity. We haven't even talked about how uh, carbon dioxide affects the nutrition in your food and affects plants. Like there's going to be increased biological changes in our planet. And we need to completely think about planetary health and one health that we protect the whole planet because we are inextricably linked as a species to the planet. And so if we don't mitigate, if we don't really make sure these regulations can be in place, and as you said, they're economically viable. These are not done at the exclusion of the economy. In fact, people will benefit, economies benefit, workers benefit by having a cleaner, healthier planet. On the other side, for individual mitigation as a healthcare worker, 
yes, I feel like I can do a better job always. I can make sure that someone has an air filter in their home in a, in a proactive way to be thinking about wildfire that might affect them nearby. I can be very much proactive in making sure that everyone has the appropriate air mask if they do have to work outside or be outside in the wildfire smoke. So things like this are helpful in adaptation, but one cannot occur without the other. We must focus on mitigation and put disaster plans and, ad and adaptation plans together, but the two are connected. I completely agree. You know, I'll just make make mention, I did interview your Stanford colleague, Scott C. Jacobson. Uh, this sure. is Cambridge University text. Uh, he's brilliant on this issue. So uh, maybe care if you want to comment about your understanding of what Stanford's doing. And again, Professor sure. uh, Pereira, if you want to make any related comments about your understanding of what Columbia University is doing. We're very fortunate to work with two universities that have been very forward thinking. And I hope that many other universities will join us in that. And not that, you know, any university is perfect, but uh, with um, the, the sustainability school that uh, Stanford now has with multidisciplinary, transdisciplinary approaches to uh, climate change issues and renewable energy sources, there are a lot of people thinking about this. And we need to share technology, we just share data. We need to make sure that whatever is available to us, that we can monitor it appropriately, we can benchmark it appropriately. So I think there are a lot of great things being done um, at Stanford as well as other places for renewable energy. There's a lot of hope and promise. I'm an optimist, but I'm also someone that likes to confirm and make sure that we benchmark any science that does come out of the university, that we try it and we can make sure it works for the public and that it makes an impact in the future. Thank you. Uh, uh, Professor Prairie, do you have a comment? Well, Columbia, uh, the School of Public Health, Nauman School of Public Health at Columbia University uh, introduced the first climate and health program. Uh, and uh, the Dean, Linda Freed, um, made it very much of her, her goal to include other schools of public health in, in this effort to educate students to do the things that Barry's talking about, conduct the research, solutions-based research, to get the word out, to do the analyses like what we've been describing, what we've described in the article in the New England Journal of Medicine. And now um, it's part of a larger climate school across the whole university, pulling in all the different faculties uh, in every way. So um, that's an exciting new initiative just in the last, uh, I would say, the climate school was founded oh longer ago than 10 years but uh the, the new climate school was in the last in the last 10 years and five to ten really and it's been really blossoming uh and also of course uh columbia is aiming to be uh green and and energy you know using low carbon uh means to heat and cool and and uh, so forth encouraging uh, students to adopt the um, healthier, climate healthier methods in their own lives. So I think these universities across the country and around the world are really making really great attempts. They're a big force in this whole struggle and, and can more and more inform each other and connect the work that they're all doing. I think that's maybe a bit of a gap. Don't you, Kari, that there isn't perhaps yeah. enough sharing of, of solution results of solution 
based research yeah. and and uh, collaborations between different universities and disciplines. But that's come a long way. So I too am a, a cautious optimist. Okay. You know, just to just to note um, to know Columbia's works. Uh, I did an interview as well. Professor Nick Freudenberg, his his book at what cost modern capitalism the future of health uh, last year. Um, so with that, we're at our time. Um, I, I do want to ask, uh, you know, this I think this work is is so uh, very important. The review article you wrote, it's really I think instantly seminal. Um, it's been I think very much uh, needed. Um, so my question is, or maybe not a question, a statement. I hope you continue these kinds of works or publications, at least for the policy community. I know your work gets, gets very technical, which DC policy people would probably never read, but I'd really encourage you to produce more of these types of papers. And I hope the New England Journal does so. So they announce this is going to be a series. I guess Renee Salas at Harvard is going to help uh, make, make that certain. And I actually have interviewed her at least twice. So uh, maybe... With all that, any final comments? Just that I, I, I've enjoyed this interview. I think we've covered a spectrum here and very important issue, probably the most important issue of our time. So I wanted to thank you, David, for putting us all together. Thank yes, you. Thank I'm you. So grateful, David. Please keep having these. I'm so glad we're your 20th or so, you know, interview because we cannot stop this. We need to ensure that we give agency to others. And we give agency to our voice and educate and people like yourselves coming so well prepared to interviews. It's excellent. So we want to, and yes, Dr. Prayer and I are continuing these messages and will continue to be able to help publish and get it out to policymakers. Absolutely. I thank you again. Stay well. Best of luck. You too. Thank, thank you. you. Have a good okay. day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.